Good morning. Well, who, if you don't know me, I'm John Carius. I'm one of the elders here, and I share the same last name as the pastor. So if you're here to hear Adam speak, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> we are finishing a short series on our favorite psalms. So last, this is the week four of this section. We'll come back to the psalms later on. Next week, we're going to be going into Galatians. So uh, be prepared for that. And uh, for this this service, we were asked to choose our our favorite psalm or some that meant something to us, and I chose Psalm 19. Now, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, I pray that uh, your word would be proclaimed, that God, we'd see your glory in, in all creation, that we'd see your, your revealing yourself through your word, and it'd be so important to us to understand that you've shown yourself your infinite holiness and transcendence has been made, to, made known to us through the things you've created and through the word you've given us. God, we thank you for this. We pray that, you're, that uh, you'd keep me from error this morning as we speak here. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you think about it, what is the most common reason why people on college campuses are turning away from Christianity, rejecting Christianity. And you know, you can think about it, and you, you look at social media, and you think, well, maybe it's that homosexuality, same-sex marriage thing. Maybe it's gender fluidity. Maybe it's even the problem of evil. But, you know, it's not any of those things. The reason that people have a problem with Christianity in the academic setting is, does God exist? And Maybe a corollary to that is, are Christianity and science incompatible? We're going to read, well, I want to, I want to give you a, a sample of this before we go on and read this passage. And Bertrand Russell, who was a mathematician, a philosopher in the 20th century, and a very popular and influential atheist, said this, in his essay, Why I'm Not a Christian. He wrote this essay in 1927, and it had an influence on, on philosophy and science since that point. He said, we may define faith as the firm belief in something for which there is no evidence. Where there is evidence, no one speaks of faith. We do not speak of faith that two and two are four, or that the earth is round. We only speak of faith when we wish to substitute emotion for evidence. And what is he saying is that there's no evidence for God, so why believe in him? And that idea is now extremely typical on secular college campuses that are teaching our children. And what brings us up is this, this passage we're going to read in, in Psalms 19. And let's read that together beyond the screen, but I'm going to read it here. It's to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and to the words... To the end of the world, 
In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. If there ever was a mic drop from reading the Psalms, that was it. You know, we had the pleasure of singing a couple of my favorite songs today. That we, I thank the worship team for doing that. Come Thou Found has always been a favorite, but then we sang Indescribable, and that describes the first part of this passage. C.S. Lewis had this to say about Psalms 19. He said, The greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, C.S. Lewis was, a, was a, um, a literary master. That was his specialty. And he had this to say about Psalms 19. I was reading through a commentary, and this commentary was Presbyterian. He was looking through the, the hymnal that they were using. You know, and, and Presbyterians generally sing... Psalms. And so he's looking through there and he found that there was 133 Psalms that were, had songs written about them in this hymnal. And most Psalms had one song written about them, written about that Psalm. Maybe two. Psalms 19 had seven Psalms written about this. I shared with my uh, small group that this Psalm became a very favorite for me because we would sing this, we would get together Friday nights at this guy's house, and we'd invite non-Christians there, and we would sing this, these songs, and one song we sang was Psalm 19, and I was standing next to this guy, and we were singing Psalm 19, and he told me after the song was over that he had to move, because if he, sat next, if he stood next to me and sang, he would sing off-key. It was at that point that I learned that I can't sing. <laughs> this psalm is kind of divided into two. We see the first six verses talking about creation. We see the next portion of that scripture, the next up to verse 7 through 14, talking about God's word. And people thought, well, maybe it's two psalms. They made a mistake when they put them together. It's one psalm. It's one psalm about God revealing himself to us. And it's the transcendent God has made himself known in creation and the word. Now, we don't use the word transcendence much. But what it means is it's beyond the universe and beyond material existence. God is not part of his creation. He's beyond creation. It's not pantheism. God is beyond this, and he's transcendent beyond this, and that he 
created this universe for us. And he's given his word to reveal himself to us. If you look at those first six verses, we're talking about how creation reveals God to us. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Shows us that God is glorious. It also shows that God is the creator of all. He's creator of the universe. The works of his hands are, are what we see. You know, we all probably have had an experience in nature where you, you are exposed to a, a starry night or you see a, a mountain range or you notice the hills covered with beautiful trees of the Ozarks. And, and you just kind of stand and wonder. I remember as a kid, probably in junior high, going out to western Colorado and, and riding in my cousin's convertible. And it was out in the country. There was no light pollution. And we saw the heavens and the Milky Way and how amazing and how awesome and awestruck I was by that. And that's just what this is declaring, that God is the creator. God is glorious. Verse 2 says, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. It means this is continuous. Day to day it never ends. God reveals His glory to us in creation always and continuously. And it says it gushes out. The pouring out is really, hero means gushing, just pouring forth abundantly what we see around us. It never ends. It's overwhelming. It's there every day and every night. Verse 3 says, There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their voice and their words to the end of the world. God's revelation of Himself through creation is universal. There is no place, there is no time when it has not been made known. And it's been made known to every person goes on in verse 5 and 6. It says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You think of David who wrote this psalm. He looks up in the sky. What's the most obvious, the biggest, the most glorious thing he sees? It's the sun. Not only that, the sun ruled every aspect of their life. It ruled the seasons, the the harvest, the planting of food, what you, when you got up, when you went to bed, what you did. The sun ruled everything. And, and David is telling us that God is in control of that that goes across the sky. There's nothing out of God's control. All life is dependent upon the sun and God is in control of that. Every minute, every day. The, the result of this is that so every person no matter what continent they're on, what generation they're from, even from the, the people in the ancient world in the Fertile Crescent to people living modern man in Fort Smith, Arkansas, God has revealed himself to them through his creation. And man is without excuse. You know, it's very important to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And Paul deals with this, as most of us know, in Romans 1. In Romans 1, 16-23, I'm going to read that for it. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became fruitful in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So you should ask yourself the question, well, if God revealed himself in creation to everyone at every time and every place and continually does that with all his glory and his infiniteness, how come we're not all believers in God? In in Paul tells us that we we claimed to be wise and became fools and we gave up the knowledge of this God and because of sin we are separated from him and we don't realize that. So when you argue to folks about the existence of God, they may not understand that revelation they've been given. So what would you say to the Bertrand Russells of this age, to the atheists? What does the Bible say? Well, Psalms 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. There's a quote from Spurgeon, short one. It says, he who looks up to the firmament and then writes himself down as an atheist brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. Yeah, I love Spurgeon. He doesn't mix words. Well, the general revelation, that's what it's called. When God reveals himself through creation to every man, that's a general revelation. And it tells us about God's as glorious and as creator and as infinite, but it tells us nothing about his moral character. You know, it brings me to the second comment I mentioned about the conflict between Christianity and science. You know, we should make a determination that what is science? Science is man's endeavor to understand the created things. That's science. It's the study of the natural world. But science has become, scientism has become a religion unto itself. Science really took off at the time of the Reformation. Johannes Kepler, who was a German astronomer, mathematician, kind of a key figure in the 17th century scientific revolution, said this, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order which has been opposed upon it by God. How we have lost our sight. But think of it, God has revealed himself in the heavens, in the things of the earth, and the more we study him, the more we see the the fine-tuning the infinite knowledge and control that God had to have in creation. We look at subatomic particles, you know, and you go, how can this be? You have positive and negative charges, you have weights, you have, you have mass, and all these things, and we begin to understand that this is just indescribable. Well, that's not enough. God has revealed himself 
His glory, His creation. But we don't know nothing. We know nothing of His moral character. So it leads us to the second aspect of this. That God is going to reveal Himself in a special way through His Word. And that's verse 7 through 14 of this passage, which deals with something we call special revelation. General revelation through His creation, special revelation through His Word that He's given us. It tells us about His justice and mercy, His love, His wrath, His goodness, His grace, His compassion. It even tells us about the Redeemer. Another quote from Spurgeon says, He is wisest who reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work. And feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. So let's look at this, this passage. Now you have to realize when David's writing this about God's word, what's he writing about? He, he didn't have the New Testament. David probably had the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Maybe he had a little bit of the early history from Joshua and Judges. We don't know for sure. But David's talking about this revealed Word of God. In verse 7 it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Again, the law referring to the Torah, the Pentateuch. And it says it's all sufficient revelation. It's perfect. God's law in the, in the Pentateuch, even Leviticus, is perfect. I say even Leviticus because that's probably the hardest book to read. The testimonies of statutes, Lord, making wise the simple. Again, we look at the New Testament to explain this to us. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21, it says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in his wisdom God in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what, has, what, we, of what we preach to save those who believe. The wisdom of the world is folly. God has revealed the wisdom and made us wise through His Word. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right and rejoice in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And all this refers to precepts, commands, orders, of the law. They're right, they're straight, they're appropriate. They are pure, they give light to the eyes. Again, Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord endures because it is pure. You have to realize that all these words we're using for the word of God we reflect God's character. And because God is pure, because God is holy, because God is good, His words are good. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says to us, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
God's word is eternal. All this, all God's word is grounded in his character. God who is wise and unchanging. And it goes to verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of honeycomb. It's to be desired because it is good and it shows us God's character. It shows us His love for us. It shows us His compassion and His redeeming character. This special revelation, Paul again talks to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. 14 through 17, Paul is communicating with Timothy, and it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word is desirable for all the reasons we mentioned so far. Nothing is worth more than God's word. It reveals us his plan of salvation for us and his communion with us. Verse 11 says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me back from your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We are rewarded from, by keeping by being kept from sin. And how does that happen? Psalms 119, 9-11 reiterates this. It says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. I have stored up in your word, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Again, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The general revelation of creation and the special revelation in God's word come together perfectly in the person of Jesus. This passage ends with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David knew that God was his redeemer. He did not know the person of Jesus, but he did know that there would be a deliverer in his line that would fulfill his throne forever, who would be the savior of his people. So we read this, this perfect combination of General revelation and special relation comes about in the person of Christ. Let's read John 1, 1 through 5, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is that rock and that redeemer that David mentioned in this passage. 
So we have the general revelation and creation, and Jesus was there. Jesus was the creator. And we have Jesus, the Redeemer, being revealed to us in the New Testament. We can, all we can do is marvel at what God has done for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your creation, that you've shown yourself to us, your magnificence, your glory, your might. And through your word, your love for us, the love that caused you to give your son as an atoning sacrifice so we can walk with you. God, I pray that we never forget these things. Then when we see your creation, that we'd marvel at it. we glory in it. As we read your word, that we see your love your character, your holiness, and we follow you. And we ask that, as David asked in the psalm, that you keep us from sin, that we would follow you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.